millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Labour call for a balancing of power between the landlord and tenant as the party proposes new renter protection legislation. Former Director General of the HSE, Tony O'Brien, says health is in more of a crisis than ever before as care reaches an impasse. And later, GP Dr Nina Burns and psychotherapist Richard Hogan on the HSE's new free online counselling service and the state of the nation's mental health. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. have all heard of proposed changes to renters' rights in Ireland with the aim of levelling the playing field between tenants and landlords. Joining us to discuss is Labour TV, TD Ivana Bacic, who proposed the bill, Minister of State in the Department of Rural and Community Development, Joe O'Brien, Director of Advocacy for Focus Ireland, Mike Allen, and joining us via Skype tonight is estate agent Owen Riley. You're all very welcome along to the show. I want to start with you, Ivana. Um, the renters' rights bill, it's your baby. You launched it today and you obviously feel really strongly about the state of the rental market in this country and the rights afforded to tenants. So what's in this bill that you believe will change the picture? Well, thank you, Claire, and I do feel very strongly about this. And indeed, during the Dublin Bay South by-election over the summer, I heard from so many people across the constituency who are worried, who are renting, and who are worried about uh, fear of eviction, about the fear of rent hikes, uh, and indeed who were telling me about poor quality of the accommodation that they were living in, and the fact that they didn't, couldn't see it as a sustainable long-term option because there was so little security for them. So, my, so together with our housing spokesperson, Senator Rebecca Moynihan, who's been a long-term advocate for greater protection for renters, we brought forward this bill. It essentially would do three things, Claire. It seeks, first of all, to ensure greater security of tenure, to protect tenants more strongly against eviction by preventing what we call no-fault evictions. So in other words, evictions where a tenant hasn't breached any conditions and is paying rent and where a landlord typically is looking to sell a property. We're saying that that should no longer be the practice and that instead the we should be able to see tenancies of indefinite duration, which is the norm in other European countries. So protection against eviction, first thing. Second thing, protection against unaffordable rents and deposits, a number of measures. Among them, we're looking to make the whole country a rent pressure zone, so to extend that provision uh, but we're also looking to ensure that t deposits must be no more than one month's rent and we're also calling separately for a three-year rent freeze to just calm things for tenants and renters we know that inflation's going up we know that uh, uh, many landlords are put are, are seeing what was supposed to be a cap on rent increases in the rent pressure zones as a target and so rents have gone up 40 percent in Dublin since 2016 so that's untenable and the third thing we're looking to do is to provide for better quality 
quality of accommodation and give tenants more rights. For example, the right to rent an unfurnished property. This is about addressing the imbalance of power. Housing policy in Ireland has been for far too long skewed towards seeing rental properties as investments, seeing it from the perspective of a landlord. And instead we must redress that and look again, shift our paradigm so that we're ensuring that people are enabled to live longer term in rental accommodation, to see it as a home, not as an investment. Okay, I want to go straight to Owen Riley on, on that point. Owen, you would represent a lot of landlords out there. Um, this need to restore the balance, as Ivana Bacic puts it, that renters are basically being treated like it isn't their home, but it's an investment for landlords. What do you say that those protections are needed for fairness? Well, Ivana has just spoken about security of tenure, um, a rent freeze, uh, rising standards uh, to improve the quality of rental accommodation. Um, but with some of the measures she's talking about bringing in, there are unintended consequences to, consequences to that. So, for example, if we, why would a landlord raise the quality of a rental property if their rent is, is frozen and they can't increase rent in line with increasing the improving the quality of the accommodation itself? In terms of uh, security of tenure, in, in principle, I think I and other stakeholders in the industry would agree with that. But then the landlord, if they wish to sell their property, are sitting with a, are selling with a tenant in situ. Now, if that tenant is paying a rent that's well below the market rent, uh, well, then there's major implications for the capital value of that property. So if it can only be sold to another investor, uh, given it has a sitting tenant in it, if that rent is well below the market rent, there's huge consequences there for the landlord when selling their property. And will also damage, uh, like many of our uh, landlords, they own one or two properties, they're mum and dad landlords, as I would call them. And many, for many, these properties are their long-term pension. Um, many of them have mortgages on these properties, so the margins are, are very, very tight. So while well-meaning, there's huge unintended consequences if these kinds of measures are brought in. Okay, um, Ivana, I want to ask you about that uh, and the point that Owen was making there about landlords um, not being, you know, so typical that a lot of people have become landlords through accident because they bought at the height of the boom and then now they've been forced to rent, they're in negative equity and they're not making money on these rentals. So all that's happening here is more restrictions, more layers of bureaucracy are being put on them as they try to go about renting their property and provide accommodation for people. Well, look, Claire. I mean, I've met many accidental landlords, as we might as we might call them, and indeed many are across the constituency in Dublin Bay South too. And absolutely, we understand that that is a, a real feature of our current housing market and our rental market. But what we need to do, I think, is, and I think most reasonable people, including landlords, would accept that we do need to ensure that rental properties are seen much more clearly as homes for people who are renting, and from that perspective, rather than always in the perspective of the investor the landlord and I do think that there's a strong argument for ensuring that there is provision for tenancies of indefinite duration we don't for example as we have indeed with commercial leases mm -hmm. as we have with people who are renting in local authority properties where we don't have this sort of almost fetishization of so, vacant possession I so I think we need to move that it's about leveling yeah. a playing field and again yes. I think there's there's enormous support for this I mean the minister did in fact accept the bill yeah, he didn't oppose it yeah, and he's sorry and he did say he would be bringing in elements of it himself and we'll certainly be Just on that security also. of tenure on a very practical level, yes. what Owen is saying there is that if somebody is in, in the property and the landlord wishes to sell, 
essentially he has to sell to another landlord as distinct from a family or put on the open market and, and sell to a couple because uh, or a family or anyone else because then they're left in a situation that they have a tenant in situ. Well, again, it's about changing the culture. This is absolutely the norm with commercial tenants who have a right to remain and landlords don't have to get, don't have a custom of looking for vacant possession and they sell on. So what we're looking at is moving towards a more European norm where the tenancy persists and survives through the sale. So we do sell on with tenancies in situ, but it changes the landscape generally and this would change the culture, it would help to change the culture to enable us to see renting more as a sustainable long-term option. And among the things we're looking for, as I said, is this right to rent an unfurnished property. And the Minister was very taken with that today yeah. because, again, that is the norm elsewhere. People are allowed to move their own okay. furniture and their own possessions in. They're allowed to have pets in their rental yes. properties and so on. So it is about just changing our culture changing and addressing culture that and imbalance. Cha and changing perceptions. Mike, I want to come to you because in Focus Ireland, in the last year, you've seen, we've seen this freeze on evictions. And that's obviously helped people stay in their homes. But now that ban is being lifted. Um, and what's happening? What are you seeing in your services as a result? Well, we've been saying for years that the, what's driving people into homeless, so many families into homelessness, is the crisis in the private rental sector. It isn't the private rental sector that's caused the crisis. It's, it's our failure to build sufficient social homes and, and our whole failure to have enough places for, for everybody to live. But where the crisis plays out is in the private rented sector. So the largest number of, of families who became homeless over that period were, became homeless that had long-term tenancies in the private rented sector and, and were evicted. And we've put forward a very a range of different measures mm. to deal with that issue which have been ignored. During the, and, and in fact, it was denied that this was, was the issue. During the COVID period, as you say, they banned those evictions, which they had previously said was impossible. And we saw a very steep decrease in the number of families that are homeless. Now, what we're seeing now is a return to what we've been seeing before the COVID crisis. All our advice and information services right across the country in Focus, Ar Focus Ireland are having calls from individuals and families who are facing eviction from their property. Some of them have been there for many, many long years. Many, most of them are paying their rent, the landlord's selling up. Some of them is an increasing problem of, of, of households being in arrears, which, is a, 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 which we haven't been seeing for a number of years. And we're going to see, we're very, very worried that we're going to start to see the same sort of very rapid escalation okay. number of families and individuals are homeless that we, that we saw before the crisis. Well, look, these issues, and, and Mike Allen really bringing it home when he's talking about, at the very coalface of it, and homeless services being affected and families essentially being out on the street because they have nowhere to go if a landlord wants to sell up. On this issue of no-fault evictions and banning landlords from selling their home unless they keep tenants in place, um, would you agree with that? Would you, would you consider that for government? Oh, just to say, uh, the Minister has not opposed the bill, and that's a very important point to note. We welcome very much the spirit of it and the vision that Ivana has laid out in terms of people being able to picture and plan a life for themselves in rented accommodation and and this is something we actually have committed to doing in the new housing for all plan, plan as well we have committed to legislating for tenancies of indefinite duration it is very much the way to go i believe it's very much a green party policy as well and there are other aspects of the housing for all plan as well that will help that and there are radical moves as well and, and in particular I'd like to mention cost rental and this is particularly for a group of people who don't qualify for social housing and cannot afford private rented accommodation either 
So rental on a house is basically charged over a period of time to simply cover the costs. So and this is a groundbreaking measure. We have to do something different as well yeah. to change the situation with rental um, accommodation. I know they launched one cost rental development um, in my own in constituency, actually, 25 houses were available. Okay. There was over 1,000 applications. Yeah. So it's proven it it's that doesn't doesn't say the problem. No, what's the point? 25 homes yeah. available, 1,000 applications. That this, even though yeah. it, it is going some way towards a solution, it's certainly a long way off meeting the demand. Yeah for rents in, in and this city and right across the country. I'm not even for a minute even saying that it's doing that, but it, it's a wholly new concept that we have never had here before. It's used in Europe as well, and we're, going to, we're building the case for it, and I think the fact that there were so many applications for it have evidenced the fact that this is a key part of the way forward. Yeah, a key part, of, one, one part of the way forward. What about the idea that's been put forward now that in this housing crisis and with the rental issue that we have right across the country, that rent freezes should be in place for the next three years? I, think, I do think it's a question of balance, and I think Ivan has recognised that as well in terms of, in terms of other uh, adverse implications that may happen as well. But I would say that Minister O'Brien is going to take on board a lot of what's been proposed. Uh, he's bringing forward his own legislation. Uh, it will come before the doll before the end of this term. Rent pressure zones are going to be a part of the mix there in terms of how they're implemented. They're going to be looked at carefully, because obviously we have issues with inflation at the moment. So yeah, we need to adjust. What's happening with that? So... Um, obviously, the, the, the change that was to come about was that increases in rent would be linked with inflation. Yep. Inflation is now at 3%. Correct. So it's not fair. Yeah, I mean, they've worked quite well to date. I suppose any sort of indexation to inflation needs to be able to adapt if inflation goes up. Uh, and the plan is to look at that um, in this new piece of legislation. To, to, which to scrap the idea at oh, this point? No, I, I don't think we scrapped the idea. It, it is a tool that we can use to limit rent increases. So I think we'll absolutely hold on to the idea, but we need to adapt it to the new situation that we're in. OK, I want to ask um, Owen about the idea of a rent freeze or, or caps on rental increases and, and where he stands on that one and whether this would bring um, certainly more certainty, you could say, for landlords. Well, right now, landlords are operating in, in a completely uncertain uh, legislative climate. And the minister there just spoke about tweaking the rent pressure zone rules again uh, after changing them in the middle of July. Uh, right now, we're in an accommodation crisis. This crisis is going to deepen as large offices reopen, particularly, I believe, in the first quarter next year. This is happening at a time that one in two of our sellers are landlords exiting the market. And there's huge consequence, consequences there for the rental market because three quarters of our buyers right now are owner occupiers. So the number of uh, uh, rental units in Dublin and throughout Ireland continues to deplete at a time we desperately need these home. There are many reasons why landlords are leaving the market. Taxation, inefficient RTB processes. One of the speakers there spoke about the protections that were afforded tenants. These in, in general, very well-meaning and, and in many cases required. But we would have numerous clients last year who uh, received no rent for well over a year uh, and it took over a year to get those tenants out. And that is totally unfair. And in many cases, those landlords decided to leave the market altogether. So what investors need is certainty. Uh, and right now, it seems month to month, uh, there's legislative changes coming in that have huge unintended consequences. To talk about a rent freeze, a rent freeze will do the opposite of what we need. It will cause more landlords to exit the market. It's very likely that uh, foreign investment funds will leave 
Ireland. Uh, these funds are very mobile and they can go to other okay. countries, they can go to other, con other continents. Okay, just on that, on that point and keeping landlords in the market, we got a tweet, um, I'm not a, a landlord, um, but please ask Ivana, what does she propose when a tenant does not pay their rent? Well, what our bill is doing is, is to protect tenants against no-fault evictions. So we're retaining in the bill, therefore, the capacity of landlords to terminate leases where a tenant breaches the terms, for example, by not paying rent. So it wouldn't change that position. But the concern we have is that currently it's too easy to terminate a tenancy for where the tenant is still paying rent, and that's most unfair in the tenant. So it's about addressing that imbalance. And I think most landlords recognise that. Yes, of course, if the tenant is in breach, there's still the potential there to terminate the lease and that's and that's fine that's retained and I think the other th point and just to return to Owen's point about landlords leaving the market clearly uh, there is there is a perception among landlords that they that, you know you know that, that this is happening but focus on I think it, well focus Ireland has been very clear that we don't know why it's happening but we might speculate for a number a number of the points first of all that if landlords are in are in difficulty paying their own mortgage then we need to look at the bank bank rules and about why banks are therefore more willing to to see landlords sell up even where that will put a family perhaps into homelessness oh, perhaps it's so a, it's a tax issue as well that by the it, time they've and, um, paid you know paid their their tax on whatever they're getting in rent there's really very little in it and it may also be clear simply, a lot of that, hassle. simply that house prices are rising and that therefore it makes sense to sell so look there's all sorts of reasons out there i think the key yeah, thing the bottom here line is, is though we have seen 20,000 private landlords leave the market in recent years and in the middle of a housing crisis can we afford to see that happen well, what we're also seeing is an increase in bigger landlords coming in and institutional investors and preferably in housing associations and again if we look at the European model we see a much bigger proportion of landlords who are in that in, who are larger landlords who are who are not for profit except for example housing associations and I think again that's the sort of model we need to move towards and what we need to see as I say is a reasonable rebalancing of rights and responsibilities between landlords and tenants in a system where in Ireland for far too long it's been skewed towards seeing rental properties okay. only as investments. I want to um, just play a clip of something that Leo Varadkar said in the Dáil yesterday when he was asked about the whole issue around renters' rights. Bear in mind, most landlords, and I'm not one of them, uh, only owns one property or two. 86% only own one property or two. So we need to balance that too. Uh, and one person's rent uh, is another person's income. It might be their pension. Uh, might be how they pay the mortgage. Do you agree with that, uh, Joe Brown, that you know, it, is, it is difficult that landlords are people too in this system and they're being shortchanged? I, I don't see it as a dichotomy. I mean, that can still be the case well, for, it is a for private we're seeing individuals. It play out here. We are seeing it playing out here tonight that but, there is a huge difference in opinion yeah. on the likes of a renter's rights bill when you have landlords saying, we've already got so much red tape, there's the tenancies board there, and we're dealing with so much, we're getting very little out of this and we're, we're tempted not to, to stick around in the market. But my point is that private individuals can have that financial security that the Tarnish the reference. At the same time, the tenants can have security of tenure as well they're not mutually excuse exclusive, they can be done together. Is that going to happen, that issue around security of tenure, that, that a tenant will have more 
rights to stay in their rental property and that it could be a home for them for decades. That is absolutely the plan in the Minister's legislation that he'll bring before the dog. It's very clear in, in, in Housing for All that the, the absolutely fundamental issue, which is the number of people who are being evicted as landlords sell up or moving their families in, that is not addressed in Housing for All. And it's also important to say that while there are 13 really very welcome points about uh, homelessness in Housing for All, there is no action point around uh, prevention of homelessness. There's no action point around that at all. So you can have this discussion of a perfectly regulated uh, private rental market and still very, you know, along the lines that the government is currently talking about and still hundreds of people, thousands of people being, being evicted as landlords sell up. It's really important to say that the, you talked about the 20,000 landlords who've left, who, who are no longer registered. That includes all the landlords who decided to turn their properties into Airbnbs. So it's not that they're all going away somewhere. Some of them are finding more lucrative areas. And it is absolutely true, and I think I'd agree with Owen Reedy on this, and, uh, that one of the fundamental problems is we've had legislation, then a bit of legislation, then more waffle, and then more legislation around odds and ends. This, first of all, none of them dealing with the fundamental problems, but all of them making it more and more complicated. There is not anybody who actually understands the, the enormous complexity of all the different amendments we put in on, on residential tenancies legislation, and yet there is not a plan to have a simplified, right. consolidated... Okay. One thing the government can do, employ some legal person to bring forward a consolidated private rental legislation bill not even change any of the regulations. That would make it so much okay. easier for landlords I'd... and remove so many of these perceptional issues okay. that are there for, and we for landlords. And in opposition would be yeah. only too pleased to assist okay. government constructively before, with before that. Before we go on that, um, Joe Brown, I want to ask you, this bill obviously requires cross-party support. Will you be supporting it? If Anna's bill, we're, we're not opposing it. Uh, the minister, so is that... is, minister is bringing his own legislation and we're going is to that you... we'll take some learning from Ivana's bill. Which means... It goes into limbo and we will that's, be waiting well, again. That's not true. I've already, not... I've already contacted the Housing Committee to ensure that the bill will, make, will continue its progress. I'm very anxious yes. to ensure that we'll be pushing government mm. to bring in the key change of tenancies of indefinite la, la, duration. Last year, so. the, la, under the last uh, uh, government, Labour brought forward a, a very important piece of legislation which put the rights of children at the heart of the response to homeless families. Just simply a very clever piece of, of amendment which said the, the interests of children must be considered by local authorities in dealing with homeless families. The government, support, the government supported that. It disappeared. Okay. The That's the last the, government, so uh, yeah, I can't answer uh, for them tonight. But the Greens supported that legislation when you were in opposition, and yet it has died the death now. And so we have, in our constitution, the rights of children were enshrined and we all cheered. And yet the rights of children are not mentioned anywhere in any of the legislation okay. which applies to families when they, yeah. when they become homeless. And that's an absolute outrage that it isn't even addressed that you're going to act on it. However long it takes you to do things you say you're going to do, you've got to at least commit to doing the things that really, really are important and that you committed to in opposition. But ultimately, Mike, I mean, the problem is several things. I mean, we can talk about dozens of them, but we're too dependent on private rental accommodation. We've, we've launched a plan that will see the biggest social housing build ever in the history of the state. Okay. And we're putting in radical measures to try and improve the rental situation as well, including cost rental. And I'll go back to it because it will be seen in time as a key measure that's actually turned the ship around. Okay. Well, we we'll have to leave cost rental, but we do need to see more, more protections okay. for renters. My thanks to Owen Riley and Mike Allen. Ivana Batchik and Joe O'Brien will be staying with us. And after the break, what's going on with Slauncher Care and when, when can we expect to finally see reforms in our health service?
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Now, the future of slaughter care hangs in the balance as the plan for healthcare reform hits yet more obstacles. Most recently, a spate of resignations from the Slaunter Care Implementation Advisory Board. Well, joining me to discuss is Labour TV, TD Ivana Batchik and Minister of State in the Department of Rural and Community Development, Joe O'Brien, still with us here tonight. And we're also joined by health correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Neve Griffin, and via Skype by former HSE Director General and columnist with the Business Post, Tony O'Brien. Um, you're all very welcome along. Neve, I want to come to you first. It was dubbed as a 10-year programme to transform our health and social care services. We have this advisory council mm-hmm. to government and these resignations now that have come at the top of that council. Where has it all come to a head? Well, it seems to have been bubbling behind the scenes during COVID, unknown to the rest of us. Um, the reform plan has three sort of main planks, free GP care, moving private care out of public hospitals um, and setting up regional, giving autonomy to the regions. This, we assumed, was moving along. There were some difficulties, and during the summer, um, the HSE said it was considered not a good time to launch into a major regional restructuring because of the pandemic. Um, but this was not really what the, the, the two people who resigned from, from the council thought, and they feel that there is not enough support, regardless of the pandemic, for those structural reforms to take place. And is that support that they're talking about, because we haven't heard directly from them, is that financial support? Is that the pace of the reform? Um, or, or, or a sense of reluctance there at the very top that it's, it's not going to happen as quickly as they'd like? It seems to be the latter, the sense of reluctance. There's been talk of a, the lack of political will, the lack of institutional will, so perhaps resistance from within the HSE, within the Department of Health to certain aspects of the reform. Um, of course, we don't know exactly yet what, what both of the, Laura McGahey and Dr Tom Keane we're thinking with waiting lists, the, the, the commitment to tackle waiting lists with over 900,000 people on waiting lists seems to be lacking. The commitment to tackle e-health problems, which we saw um, are huge, clearly a huge problem for the HSE, um, was another issue. And then another person resigned a few days later, Professor Geraldine McCarthy from the chair of the South Southwest Hospital Board, which is a huge board running, I mean, from Kerry all the way to Waterford. And she her main issue in her resignation letter was the lack of regional autonomy. Um, and she also mentioned the GP issue, that the, the GP developments 
excuse me, developments for GP care are not being supported. Okay, I want to bring Tony O'Brien in here. Um, as former chief of the HSE, were you surprised to see these resignations and what's unfolded with this advisory body that was supposed to help get that Slaunter Care programme off the ground? Well, when I first heard of the resignations, I, I was shocked. But the two individuals would not have taken this decision lightly. Laura McGahey and Tom Keane are very experienced in the issues of health reform, Tom Keane in particular. And he wouldn't have taken this step unless he thought that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way the whole process was set up to succeed. But I know that in doing so, he would be trying to bring about conditions in which there would be you know, a constructive discussion about how we can get the show back on the road. Slauncher Care is hugely ambitious. It's a 10-year vision towards a healthcare system that if we had it, I think we'd all be very pleased about it. But it is hellishly complicated. And the problem is we're four years down that 10-year journey. Admittedly, we've had COVID to contend with, but some of the fundamental things don't seem to be on track. And I think that's the concern here. And what about what seems to be emerging about this reluctance, the lack of will to get the job done? Isn't that a well, major factor in all of this? It, it certainly seems to be. Now, one of the great strengths of Slauncher Care is that it represents a consensus position, an all-party consensus position brought about by the Slauncher Care Committee. Of course, in order to get consensus, everyone has to compromise a bit. And I'm afraid that what's happened is people are perhaps focusing on the little bits that they might disagree with. The stakeholder environment in health is, is wide and diverse, and everyone can have a different view about how they might do things differently. The problem with that is that we end up going around in circles. And when you look globally at major health transformations that have been successful, they've not been led by departments of health. They've been led by the very top of government. I give you the example of Obamacare in the United States, led directly from the White House. When Tony Blair swept into power after 18 years of Tory rule, they did a number of significant things with the health service, led from Downing Street. And the question here, if we want to do this really ambitious reform, is should it not be led from the Department of the Thesic, from the very centre of government, in order to have a strong system for getting decisions made okay. and not continually having everything second-guessed, which is unfortunately the history of, of health reform in many countries. Uh, Joe O'Brien, isn't that a very good point, that why isn't that when we have 900,000 people on public waiting lists, the need for reform, a 10-year plan, billions promised to be pump in, pumped into to get the job done, that we don't have the heart of government looking after it? The heart of government is very much in it, and I want to state that categorically what tonight. About just, you know, I, what I mean, Tony I mean, everyone, was everyone saying there like, about the Department of the Taoiseach yeah. should be—it should be coming from there. The heart of government is in it. We're fully committed to Slauncher Care. Uh, uh, lots of programmes want to be located in the Department of Taoiseach because of, of the extra drive that it gives. But I, you know, I just want to be clear so as well. It does give an extra drive. It, so with the health crisis that we have, can you not see that maybe that should be one programme? that should be directed from the Department of the Taoiseach? I mean, we have a Minister for Health who's handled a global pandemic and one of the most successful uh, vaccination uh, programmes uh, in, in the world as well. And I think he's the right guy for the job because I do think he's got, he's got the stomach for it and he's got the persistence for it. And I think there is something that's been flagged, I think, that I think we need to learn from in terms of the two resignations, that there is a sense that there's some institutional inertia and it is our job as politicians to simply light a fire under that and put some urgency under that. And I do think Stephen Donnelly can and will do that. And he'll have the backing two, of all his government partners. Why have two people partners. quit then? Or a third, a third person? Why have three quit? 
he's having conversations with them at the moment, I believe, and I think he, he will listen very carefully, and I think it's very, very important that we learn from them and we take the messages away and we do it better. Okay, so he's having exit interviews or to, to, um, um, with the three people involved, or at least that, that's what we're hearing. Um, it doesn't solve the problem, though, does it? What do you think about this stalling, really, on this programme at this point? Well, it's a huge worry. It's a huge concern, frankly, because Slauncher Care did provide and does provide an agreed blueprint for radical health care reform. As everyone has acknowledged, all parties signed up to it. It was supposed to be a, a very clear plan, very clearly setting out the steps to be taken to get us to a single-tier health service, and everyone signed up to it. And it's of real concern that we see these resignations, that in his resignation letter, for example, uh, Tom Keane said that the requirements for implementing this programme for change are seriously lacking, that both he and Laura McGahey referred to specific issues and yet in their letters, and yet we still haven't heard anything about how government proposes to address those concerns. There's really serious worry about apparent opposition to this re the regionalisation plan that is such a key part of the programme for reform. And I think we really urgently need to hear from the health minister, if he's to lead it, and, but more importantly, from government, as to how precisely they're going to address this, who are, going to who are they going to appoint to replace uh, Tom Keane and Laura McGahey? Will the implementation council's term be extended? Because that's, again, a big worry. Uh, really, we're left floundering with just no sense clear, of commitment. There's, there's no opposition in government to the regionalisation plan. And, and can I just state a fact, and, and these are facts. So where is the opposition coming 97 from? 97% of the deliverables of Shalanta Care are either on track or delivered. And that's a fact, that, and that's on, important. On that key there. sticking point, which seems to have emerged around regionalisation, where is the opposition coming from? There, that's what I just said. There is no opposition in government no, to in doing government, that. But is there, is there opposition from the HSE? Is there I don't a have lack that of willingness to change? I think, I think Minister Donnelly would be trying to find that out. There's okay, a, right. I think there's a I sense just, there's a resistance coming from somewhere. And it may not be within government, but there's a, that there's a resistance okay. and that that has certainly been a factor. It, appear, it may appear, but we simply don't know. Okay, yet. so there is an Oireachtas committee hearing um, coming up on this. Uh, Stephen Donnelly has agreed to attend in early October. Um, we would also hope, I imagine, to hear maybe from the departed members of the Advisory Council. Do you think we're going to get a bit of clarity on just where the plan is at, at that point, Neve? Well, I imagine we will. Um, it's also my understanding that the, the, people, the three people who've resigned have been asked to appear before the Health Committee and are favourable um, towards that. And I think that will be really interesting because at the end of the day, we're outside the process looking in and they have the overview of where the resistance actually is coming from and how much it was influenced by COVID. Um, because we have had, you know, 20 months of a huge struggle for the health service. Mm. So it would be quite interesting, I think, for us to see Mr. Donnelly um, sitting with or, you know, or in, in consecutive weeks and discussing both sides quite openly and publicly because it is, as we've all acknowledged, so important. Yeah, I, I want to ask you, Tony, um, Minister Donnelly did say, and it was alluded to there by Joe O'Brien, that um, there was a total of 112 deliverables for the first six months of the year and that 109 are either on track or being progressed. Um, is that your sense of it, that actually they are making headway despite these bad headlines? Well, I think it's important to acknowledge that there has been some progress. And while COVID has been a huge challenge, it's also been an accelerator. So many of the things that have been done to facilitate the health system's functioning during COVID have been what I would call slauncher care friendly. 
But, you know, I think we need to be careful with these statistics about 97% of what was promised in the plan for the first half of the year being on track. The problem is the big things, the foundational things, the things that will really transform the health system in the way that the committee envisaged are not being progressed. Uh, so need to be careful about statistics like 97%. I think that the last thing we should do is A, get into recrimination about how we got here, B, get into spin about what we have or haven't got to. There is a fundamental problem. These resignations underline it, and the challenge for everyone now is how to get it back on track. I think it's positive that the Sloucher Care Advisory Council members have offered to stay on till the end of the year rather than have their term of office end right now in the middle of this crisis. I think that gives some breathing space to try and get this back on track, and I hope that will be accepted. Okay, thank you for that, Tony. And um, before we go, I want to ask you, Ivana Bacic, um, as this Catherine Zapone controversy has rumbled on, and we know that you appear before your party to offer an apology for attending um, what is now known as Marion Gate um, um, and the party back in the summer. But we know also that Catherine Zapone has respectfully declined to appear before an Oireachtas committee to answer questions on that UN envoy appointment um, that has now since been scrapped. Should she appear? It's a matter for her. She's now a private citizen. She turned down the uh, the role in the end, as we know. Mm. We've heard uh, two consecutive appearances by Minister Coveney, and there was a very full debate in the Dáil last week and a, and a final vote on it. And that, that, I think, is where it lies currently. So we had two appearances by Simon Coveney, and he clarified matters, um, in his words, in the second appearance, which leaves more questions, arguably, for Catherine Zappone in order to clear up this matter. Would it not be in her interest to appear and in the public interest? As I say, Claire, it's a matter for her now as a private citizen. The, the committee does not have powers of compelability. She's in another jurisdiction, I understand. So, you know, they've, they've had their answer, I think. How do you think it's all played out? Well, I think it's unfortunate how it's played out. And I do think, I must say this, and indeed uh, my party leader, Alan Kelly, has said it, I, I think a lot of time was spent that could have been spent better on other priorities. We've been speaking tonight about really serious issues around housing, around renters and lack of protection, and around the future of our healthcare system. And I think those are the matters about which we should be spending our time as legislators debating. Okay, so no requirement, you think, on Catherine Zappone's part to appear before that Iraq this committee? It's a matter for her as a private citizen, as any other private if citizen. If it was you, would you? Who knows? I don't know is the answer to that. Okay, thank you for that, uh, Ivana Bacic, and we will leave it there. And um, thanks to you, Joe O'Brien, Neve Griffin, and Tony O'Brien, who joined us via Skype. And coming up after the break, the HSE launch a free online counselling service nationwide. But is it enough to ease the pressure on our mental health services? Stay with us. Back now, following the success of an initial pilot scheme, the HSE has launched a free online counselling therapy nationwide for those suffering with anxiety and depression. But is it too little too late, considering our massive waiting list to access our mental health services and our long-term underfunding of the sector? Well, joining me to discuss is psychotherapist and author Richard Hogan and GP Dr Nina Burns. But before I do that, um, Nina, I want to ask you about this decision that has been made by government on the recommendation of NEFIT that close contacts at schools and childcare facilities, if asymptomatic, can go to school and need not stay at home and restrict their movements. Is that something um, to be welcomed, do you think? 
So I suppose I can see two sides to this. So the, the doctor in me obviously says, in an ideal world, in a pandemic, I would like the fact that someone who's a close contact to someone with a contagious disease then restricts movement. However, I, I think they've made the decision on the basis that they've been looking at the evidence and their evidence thus far is that, that when they have had these children restricting movement, that not a lot of them have tested positive in the, in the long run. And so they're weighing up the benefit of a child being out of school for 10 days or crash for 10 days and the knock-on effect on the family in the home versus the chance that someone around them will get COVID. And, and I, I assume they have made this decision based on looking at those numbers and certainly from listening this evening, they seem to have decided that the numbers of cases that were knock-on to direct contacts did not warrant that restriction of movement. So I can understand that there are a lot of parents breathing a sigh of relief at home. And, you know, as I said, recently my son had COVID and he was at home and having to make all those phone calls to people to tell them that they're likely to get a call from the HSE. And they were very good. They did all restrict movement. There were no cases related to my son that I'm aware of. None of those people tested positive. So, you know, I, I think... I can understand why it's done, um, and I hope we don't see a spike in cases, but I, I do see why some people are nervous. And to offer reassurance to parents, yeah. uh, they can still book an online test. The child who's yeah. asymptomatic and maybe a close contact, maybe their pal in school got it, for reassurance for them and the family, they can still get a test. Yeah, there's certainly no mention of testing being stopped. They're just not going to do the contact tracing testing. But if a parent rang me and said, my child is a close contact with someone, I would really like them tested. I'm not going to say no to referring them. And certainly we haven't given any guidance that those people shouldn't be tested. So, you know, and parents can still go online and book tests. So I think there are going to be some parents who will want to do that and some won't. Okay. Yeah. Um, on this uh, HSE counselling initiative, it's online, it's new, uh, I take it, Richard, that you would welcome any such measure to allow people access mental health services? Absolutely, Claire. I think it's a very uh, laudable initiative. I think the pressures on the services over the last 18 months have been immense. I think Dr. Nina, would, anybody working on the front line would, would have experienced incredible stress on the service. Being the clinical director myself of a service, I found it particularly, uh, you know, the pressure has been immense. And so when something like the HSC rolls out initiatives like this, I think we have to, you know, applaud it and say this is really good to get people in front of services, to get people in front of people that can actually maybe ameliorate some of the things that are going on for them. Early intervention is crucial in a situation like this, and I think it's something that we should really applaud. Okay, um, when you say it's been, it's obviously been very difficult, you've been mm. very busy. Mm. Um, what sort of problems have you seen come to the surface? Yeah. Especially, because you say it's across all age groups. It is really, yeah. And yeah. we're especially seeing it in young women in something like eating disorders? Yeah. I think with, with say, um, phobic disorders or, or obsessive disorders and eating disorders, it's all about control. And when you think about the last 18 months, it's everything has been out of control. You know, for a young adolescent who's been just, just about managing themselves, you know, just about holding themselves together, and with the collapse of school, with the pulling away of their peer environment, when you think of the adolescent, that's where I work massively, was in the, in the adolescent field. They rely more on their peers than they do on their parents. That adolescence period is a little bit of pulling away from parents and towards their peer group. And that got eroded. I mean, once we started saying, distance yourself from each other, that support group, that essential feedback that teen teenagers need from each other collapsed. And I think that created a huge problem for them. And then, and then they start to rely on those old maladaptive ways of dealing with, you know, coping with their anxiety, coping with their stresses, which is managing the food. The one thing that they can control is food. And so when everything else is out of control, they go back to those old, you know, maladaptive behaviours. 
And it, it's, it's not just food disorders. It, I mean, it's right across the spectrum, anxiety and depression all coming to the fore. In launching an online counselling service, do you think people will get the same benefit out of it um, if they weren't seeing someone one-on-one -on -one in a room that it'll, it'll be, uh, will it be as effective? Um, or is there a little bit more of a remove there, do you think, Nina? So I hugely welcome this initiative because I think anything that improves access to mental health services is to be welcomed because there, we have a huge lack of access to mental health services. So I think that's the first thing to do. Silver Cloud are an Irish company and I know Ken Cahill, the owner, and you know they've had great success abroad and it's fantastic to see them being recognised here. But what I would say is different types of counselling suit different people. So I, I think having access to virtual counselling is fantastic and being able to access that for people is great. It doesn't work for everyone. I've had some patients who say they love it. Um, you know, patients maybe who live in small towns who might know everyone in the town who don't necessarily want to go to someone who they might know personally. They have better access if they can access online. Um, but there are some people who really don't like virtual consultations and that they just want the face-to-face. -face. As a doctor and as someone engaging in those kinds of consultations, I guess for me, although I do virtual consultations with patients, I very much like the hands-on mm. approach. And I think you lose a lot of the nuances of the non-verbal communication in those kind of consultations. So someone is sitting, you know, their hands in their lap, wringing their hands, you're not necessarily going to see mm. that on a video consultation. But look, anything that improves access to mental health mm. services to me is a win, and I think it's a fantastic initiative. Uh, returning to work this mm. week, there are thousands of people, well, it's not actually returning to work, sure, everyone's been working, <laughs> returning to workplaces, the returning office. to offices, leaving their homes. Um, that, that's a cause of anxiety for people too, well, this, it, Richard? I, I think this is the thing with it, Claire, because a lot of people struggled with the lockdowns and now a lot of people are struggling with the idea of lockdown being lifted and going back into work. And I think that's the multifaceted aspect of what COVID has done to us. I think that's the multifaceted um, you know, impact it's had on us. Some of us struggled with being locked down. Some of us struggled with being distant from each other and now going back to work, you know, office politics, you know, the, the idea of even the commute, just navigating interpersonal relationships in, in work. Will I be able to do that again? You know, that sense of being away from it and distance to it, we get, we get so quick into our, our habits. The idea of that habit changing now and going back into work can, cause, can be quite striking for somebody. Do you know what I was struck by? The fact that we are only spending 5% on our, of our health budget mm. on mental health I services. Know. When we are hearing about these problems day in, day out, and the pandemic, as you say, has mm. really brought it to the fore. Do you think it's an opportunity now for, for really those services to be looked at? And where would you like to see priorities outside of online counselling? Well, I think uh, I interviewed uh, an Taoiseach last year about this for, because uh, I'm a uh, family therapist and I work with adolescents and families. And I interviewed him asking about this, about this could be the silver lining of COVID, that we really start taking mental health seriously and that we destigmatise the idea of a family looking for help or a teenager looking for help. And I think that's a big part of the initiative, Claire, that needs to come out of this. And even in the corporate space, I begin to see that I think, you know, managing partners are beginning to realise that, you know, early prevention with their workers is vital. Uh, do you find patients are talking about it more? Well, so patients have always talked about it. I mean, they would say that, you know, one third of the consultations you do in general practice have a mental health basis and, and that we're seeing more of that. Um, patients, they approach it in different ways. So some people come in with very physical symptoms of anxiety and then you explore it. But they, you know, certainly we are getting better about talking about mental health. But I, I agree with you. I find it's absolutely shocking how low our budget is for mental health. And I actually, by chance, was just talking to a child and adolescent psychiatrist today. Her first next new appointment is July next year. Um, and so we 
we have an awful lot of young people who are going to need to be seen before that and we really, really need to invest in this or our fifth wave is going to be mental health issues. Mm. Which brings us back to Slauncher Care probably. <laughs> now, if you have been affected by any of those issues raised in tonight's programme, you can call the Samaritans 24-hour helpline on 116-123. Uh, my thanks to Nina and Richard for joining us tonight. And that is it uh, from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.